Book Two, Chapter Three of the History of Pompey the Little. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Corey Samuel. The History of Pompey the Little, or The Life and Adventures of a Lapdog, by Francis Coventry. Book Two, Chapter Two. The characters of the foregoing chapter exemplified. An irreparable misfortune befalls our hero. The two sisters had lain longer abed than usual the morning after their arrival in town, which was owing to the fatigue of their journey. They had but finished their breakfast by twelve o'clock. Aurora was then sitting down to her harpsichord, and Theodosia reading the playbills for the evening, when the door opened, and Count Tag was ushered by a servant into the room. When the first ceremonies were a little over, and the Count had expressed the prodigious satisfaction he felt in feeling them returned to town, he began to inquire what kind of season they had had at Bath. "'Why, really,' said Theodosia, "'a very good one upon the whole. There were many agreeable people there, and all of them easy and sociable, which made our time pass away cheerfully and pleasantly enough.' "'You amaze me,' cries the Count. "'Impossible, madam. How can it be, ladies? I had letters from Lord Marmozet and Lady Betty Scornful, assuring me that, except you and themselves, there were not three human creatures in the place. Let me see, I have Lady Betty's letter in my pocket, I believe, at this moment. Oh, no! Upon recollection I put it this morning into my cabinet, where I preserve all my letters of quality." Aurora, smothering a laugh as well as she could, said she was extremely obliged to Lord Marmozet and Lady Betty for vouchsafing to rank her and her sister in the catalogue of human beings. But surely— added she, they must have been asleep, both of them, when they wrote their letters, for the bath was extremely full. Full! cries the Count, interrupting her. Oh, madam, that is very possible, and yet there might be no company, that is, none of us, nobody that one knows. For as to all the Tremontaines that come by the cross-post, we never reckon them as anything but monsters in human shape, that serve to fill up the stage of life, like ciphers in a play. For instance, you often see an awkward girl, who has sewed a tail to a gown, and pinned two lappets to a nightcap, run headlong into the rooms with a wild, frosty face, as if she was just come from feeding poultry in her father's chicken-yard, or you see a booby squire, with a head resembling a stone ball over a gate-post. Now it would be the most ridiculous thing in life to call such people company. Tis the want of titles, and not the want of faces, that make a place empty, for if there is nobody one knows, if there were none of us in a place, we esteem all the rest as mob and rabble." Here it was impossible for the two ladies any longer to contain their laughter. "'Hold, hold, for heaven's sake,' said Theodosia, interrupting him. "'Have a little mercy, Count, on us poor mortals who are born without titles, and don't banish us quite from all public places. Consider, sir, though you have been so happy as to acquire a title, all of us have not had the same good fortune. Must we then be reckoned among the mob and rabble of life?' "'Oh, by no means!' cries the Count. "'You misunderstand me entirely. You are in the polite circle, ladies. We reckon you among the quality. Whoever belongs to the polite circle is of the quality. I was only talking of the wretched figures, who know nobody, and are known of nobody. They are the mob and rabble I was speaking of. You, indeed! No, pardon me! But pray, ladies, who is this Miss Newcombe, this great beauty, that made such a figure among you at Bath?' Was she ever in any of our drums or assemblies?" 
"'No, sir,' replied Theodosia. "'It was the first time of her appearing, I believe, in any public place. She came under the protection of Lady Marmoset. She is a very agreeable girl, and really exceedingly pretty. I often conversed with her, and indeed she promises to make a very fine woman, if she does not play to fool, and throw herself away upon that odious, detestable Griskin.' "'Ay, that Griskin, too,' cries the Count. "'Who is that detestable Griskin? I think I am acquainted with all the families of any note in England, and yet in my days I never heard of Sir Jeremy Griskin.' "'No, sir,' said Aurora, with a smile. "'Tis impossible you should know any such English family, for he gave out that he came from Ireland, and even there, I fancy, one should be pretty much puzzled to find it, for I am very apt to suspect that Mr. Griskin is nothing better than a notorious sharper. We had a report at Bath that he was the son of a blind beggar. The truth of this, indeed, never came perfectly to light, but sure Lady Marmoset, if she has any friendship for the girl, must be mad to encourage such a match." "'Absolutely distracted!' cries the Count. "'I cannot imagine what she means by it, and indeed when she comes to town I shall rally her ladyship for having such a beauty in petto, without letting me know anything of the matter.' While the Count was thus displaying his own merit and acquaintance with the Grand Monde, the door opened on a sudden, and the young lord appeared, whose character concluded the preceding chapter. He approached the ladies with a respectful bow, and inquired tenderly concerning their health, but addressed himself rather in a more particular manner to Aurora. Her face immediately changed on his entering the room, and a certain air of affectionate languor took possession of her features, which before were a little expressive of scorn and ridicule. In short, she received him with something more than complacence, and a tone of voice only calculated to convey the sentiments of love. But as the delicacy of her passion chose to reveal itself as little as possible before witnesses, she soon recovered the gaiety of her features, and addressing herself with a smile to her beloved peer, "'My lord,' said she, "'you are come in excellent time. The Count is entertaining us here with a very ingenious lecture on what it is we are to call the world.' Count Tag was no stranger to his lordship, who perfectly knew and heartily despised him for his foppery and affectation yet he was obliged now and then to submit to a visit from him, for, being in possession of a title, the Count, who haunted all people of quality, would obtrude himself on his acquaintance contrary to his inclination, and good manners, as well as the natural candour of his temper, restrained him from expressing his detestation in too explicit terms. He had, however, no great desire at present to hear him upon a topic where his impertinence would have so great a scope and therefore endeavoured to turn the conversation to some other subject. But the Count, whose eyes sparkled, as they always did, on the appearance of a man of quality, no sooner saw him seated in his chair than he fastened immediately upon him, and began to appeal to his lordship for a confirmation of his sentiments. "'My lord,' said he, "'I was endeavouring to convince the ladies that if there is nobody one knows, none of us in a public place, all the rest are to be considered in the light of porters and oyster-women. I dare say your lordship is of the same opinion." "'Indeed, sir, but I am not,' replied his lordship, and therefore I must desire you would not draw me into a participation of any such sentiments. The language of people one knows, and people one does not know, is what I very often hear in the world, but it seems to me the most contemptible jargon that ever was invented. Indeed, for my own part, I don't understand it and therefore I confess I am not qualified to talk about it. 
Whom, pray, are we to call the people one knows? Oh, mon Dieu! cries the Duke. Your lordship surely can't ask such a question. The people one knows, my lord, are the people who are in the round of assemblies and public diversions, people who have the savoir-vivre, the ton de bonne campagne, as the French call it. In short, people who frizz their hair in the newest fashion, and have their clothes made at Paris. And are these the only people worth one's regard in life? said his lordship. Absolutely, my lord, cries the Count. I can readily allow that people of quality must in general live with one another. The customs of the world in good measure require it. But surely our station gives us no right to behave with insolence to people below us, because they have not their clothes from Paris, or do not frizz their hair in the newest fashion. And I am sure if people of quality have no such right, it much less becomes the fops and coxums in fashion, who are but the retainers on people of quality, who are themselves only in public by permission, and can pretend to no merit but what they derive from acquaintance with their betters. This surely is the most contemptible of all modern follies. For instance, because a man is permitted to whisper nonsense in a Lady Betty's or Lady Mary's ear, in the side-box at a playhouse, shall he therefore fancy himself privileged to behave with impertinence to people infinitely his superiors in merit, who have perhaps not thought it worth their while to wriggle themselves into a great acquaintance? What say you, madam? added he addressing himself to Theodosia. "'Your observation,' she replied, "'is exceedingly just, my lord, but why do you confine it to your own sex? Pray let ours come in for a share of the satire. For my part, I can name a great many trumpery, insignificant girls about town, who, having wriggled themselves, as you say, into a polite acquaintance, give themselves ten times more airs, and are fifty thousand times more conceited, than the people to whose company they owe their pride.' I have one now in my thoughts, who is throughout a composition of vanity and folly, and has been for several years the public jest and ridicule of all the town for her behaviour." All this while the Count sat in some confusion, for though he had a wonderful talent, as indeed most people have, at warding off scandal from himself, and applying the satire he met with to his neighbours, he was here so plainly described that it was hardly possible for him to be mistaken. Aurora saw this, and resolving to complete his confusion. "'Count,' said she, "'I have had it in my head this many a day to ask you a question. Will you be so obliging as to tell me how you came by your title?' "'Oh, pardon me, I have no title, madam,' cries the Count. "'Mere badinage and ridicule, a nickname given me by some of my friends, that's all, but another time for that. At present I am obliged to call on Lord Monkeyman, who desires my opinion of some pictures he is going to buy.' after which I shall look in upon Lady Betty Vincent, whom I positively have not seen for these three days." Here he rose up, and made all the haste he could away, being exceedingly glad to escape the persecution which he saw was preparing for him. Little Pompey was witness of many of these interviews, and began to think himself happily situated for life. He was a great favourite with Aurora, who caressed him with the fondest tenderness and permitted him to sleep every night in a chair by her bedside. When she awoke in a morning, she would embrace him with an ardour which the happiest lover might have envied. Our hero's vanity perhaps made him fancy himself the genuine object of these caresses, whereas in reality he was only the representative of a much nobler creature. In this manner he lived with his new mistresses the greater part of a winter, and might still have continued in the same happy situation 
had he not ruined himself by his own imprudence. Aurora had been dancing one night at a ridotta with her beloved peer, and retired late to her lodgings, with that vivacity in her looks, and transport in her thoughts, which love and pleasure always inspire. Animated with delightful presages of future happiness, she sat herself down in a chair to recollect the conversation that had passed between them. After this she went to bed, and resigned herself to the purest slumbers. She slept longer than usual the next morning, and it seemed as if some golden dream was pictured in her fancy, for her cheek glowed with unusual beauty, and her voice spontaneously pronounced, "'My Lord, I am wholly yours!' While her imagination was presenting her with these delicious ideas, little Pompey, who heard the sound, thought she overslept herself, leaped upon the bed, and waked her with barking. To be interrupted in so critical a moment, while she was dreaming of her beloved peer, was an offence she knew not how to pardon. She darted a most enraged look at him, and resolved never to see him any more, but disposed of him that very morning to her milliner, who attended her with a new head-dress. Thus was he again removed to new lodgings, and condemned to future adventures. End of Book Two, Chapter Three